Welcome to ADHD Flourishing about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real life stories and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Hello, Mattia. Hello. <laughs> Mattia and I were just talking off um, camera before we press record, um, but now we're bringing you all in on the conversation. For my listeners, this is Mattia. And I want, Mattia, will you just introduce yourself? Yeah. So I'm, I usually say a composer, a writer. And depending on uh, what situation is, I'll pick what the third word is. Um, I'm a ADHD coach, I'm a hypnotherapist, and uh, yeah, I do a bunch of a bunch of stuff. So I usually try to pick three things for the conversation. But if you start poking around about me on the internet, you'll be like, "What is all this stuff?" And I'm the only Mattia Murray on the internet, so it's very easy to find weird stuff about me. In case uh, you're a weirdo, uh, <laughs> that's a weird introduction. Oh my god, I know, I love that so much. <laughs> and um i'm not the only chris hale on the internet although my handle is the only chris hale on nice. instagram and uh it's my website address um actually my mother's name is chris hale so that's also funny and yeah i would say that every day i also change the way that i talk about what i do um currently i say that i'm a neuroqueer coach for neurodivergence and creative um, girls, days and gays. They are my people. And, but I have like a long history as a performer. I was a dancer. I still teach dance. I was doing choreography in the studio yesterday. Um, I'm also newly again, a soul cycle instructor, which is a whole weird thing. I know your face. <laughs> people are always like, what is that? What is going on there? So that's, that's me. So we're just going to, like have a little conversation today about building, um, a, you know, an actual career, right? That works for us. And we both felt like we got talking offline and we both thought that um, our individual audiences would benefit from this conversation. So we just decided to hop on, do a convo and put it out to everybody. But the way it actually came about is so like cosmically aligned like, a, what was it, a week ago, two weeks ago? I don't know. I was talking to, um, we have a mutual friend, Amanda Kingsley, who is a coach. Um, and I was, we have a weekly chat. And earlier that morning, I had thought to myself, like, I need to have like a neurodivergent, neuroqueer coach on, like somebody to talk about business as I um, am, you know, kind of going through my own discovery on my neurodivergent journey just a passing thought in my head. And then I get on this call with Amanda and she's like, do you know Mattia Murray? And I'm like, no. And then she told me who you were. And I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly who I need to like talk to about this. Yay. Awesome. Yeah. And I was just on her podcast, uh, speaking light into abortion. It's a, it's a real intense episode. Uh, I did not share that with my whole audience because oh. it's uh, yeah, it's, it's very intense because it's also about my mom's experiences, which were yeah. not good. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that that connection was made. And I'd heard of you kind of in just because just we have a lot of like mutual kind of coaching 
friends, like, you know, different certain corners of the internet, I guess. Um, I'd seen you around a bit and, uh, yeah, I like the, the, how to build an actual career thing. It's such like, I think of this in, uh, stages kind of, because for example, something a friend said to me at one point that really stuck with me was, so they're disabled and they were like, how do I learn? How do I build a business without having to learn how to build a business? Because I literally don't have capacity to learn all the stuff out there about how to do it. I maybe have enough capacity to just do it, but how do I just like know that? And I was like, oh my God, that's such a fucking good question. <laughs> I don't You're know like, how to answer it. No, I mean, oh my God, y'all can't see like my face, but my eyes just like opened wide and I, yeah, shook, like shook by that saint, that question. Yeah. Because disability aside, like, which I mean, not that it is aside, obviously in this person's case or in my case, but you know, with, when you are, especially, I mean, ADHD, I just think about this so much. Like one of the ways I describe being autistic and ADHD together is just that most advice doesn't work for you. Yeah. That most advice you hear, even if it's, you know, quote, neurodiversion advice, it's, you know, like autistic advice or ADHD advice, like that stuff is a little bit more codified out there in book form. And if your experience is, you know, every time people tell me to try something and I try it, it doesn't work for me. That's like a classic ADHD experience. And so building a business, there's all this stuff out there that's like, oh, well, just do this. And then either you try and cannot do that, or you think maybe you're doing it wrong because it's not working for you. And here's another little thing about being autistic. People react to you differently. So you can be doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, but you're doing it a little off. So non-autistic people are reacting differently to you, even if you're following the playbook correctly. And that's really hard to work with. Ooh, can you give me an example like of what that might look like out in the wild? Yeah. So like a really classic one is if you're in a workplace and so there's like the official rules of what you're supposed to be doing in the workplace. But if there's like um, the example I'll use just because this came up with a specific client is Yes, you are supposed to be using your sick time in this way, but nobody's using their sick time exactly in that way. Like there's a set of kind of unspoken rules about how people are using their sick time. So this person ran out of sick time because they were using a full hour of sick time every time they had a half an hour appointment. And when they talked to HR about this, because they were out of sick time, HR was like, well, why were you doing that? And they were like, well, I'm just, I'm doing it correctly. And they're like, but nobody does that. Like. <laughs> so they were doing it correctly, but then HR was like, why were you doing it correctly? Even though they were the ones that made the rules. So you can like be following the rule book and people are like, why are you doing this? I mean, literally that's like every experience I've ever had. <laughs> and then me, I'm like, why is nobody else following the rules? Like I'm following the rules. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it honestly doesn't make any sense to me. I'm like, why yeah. do we have protocols? if no one's following protocols and right. yeah, there's that, like, I don't know. It, I feels very anxious to me to like, like kind of experience that and know that like, you don't know how to navigate a situation. Find a lot of, I spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out how to navigate a situation because I'm not sure what the implied rules are or yeah. You know what I mean? And it, and it's, 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 yeah, that in and of itself, I talk a lot about like hidden labor, you know, um, mm -hmm. like all of the, especially like as a queer person that comes up a lot, like we have to do all of this extra labor and, you know, as a neurodivergent person also, 
And I think, you know, it's in the discovery of that, realizing how much extra labor I was doing. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. Um, Dr. Mel Hauser was on talking about like before they were diagnosed with ADHD, like one of their, their, and I think also autism, their, their child was uh, diagnosed and, you know, they just thought they had fine, like their executive function was great, <laughs> but it turned out like they just had all of these systems and it was like this robust network of systems to get stuff done that made it appear like their executive function was great. And I was like, holy crap, that's been, that's totally me. Like, I could, I do all of these things, but there's this all like everything has a system and I never noticed like how much extra labor and work that is and how much that burns you out. And, you know, being a late diagnosed person, like you just think there's something wrong with you, you oh, know, totally. you, you know, you're just yeah. like, why, you know, or like I can do it for a while. Like my whole thing is like, I have like a schedule and I'm following it and I can do it for a while. And then I completely burn out, but I need, I need a structure. Like there's, there's a, there's a drive. Like if people come in and interrupt my structure, like, I'm like, what are you doing? I can't get back on task. Like there's a whole, I need it. But then I also burn out from it. So there's that battle constantly. So then like, how do we build a business, right? Like, how do we build a career when there's this constant conflict? Yeah. So oh, that's such a big question, right? So I was starting with that, like, okay, there's the the one end of the bell curve, which is like, I don't have the energy to even figure out how to start a business. I just yeah. know that this other stuff is not working for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then maybe, maybe in this uh, image that I'm creating in my mind, the other end of the bell curve is like people with a ton of support. Mm-hmm. So even if you're still, you know, disabled or neurodivergent, like maybe you have family money or, you know, like I kept finding when I was living in Boston, like shocking amount of people have trust funds. I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> it was very weird to continue. I grew up on the West coast, which is like, not, not that <laughs> culture. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's this whole like range of, you know, figuring out what works for you, which is tough because, okay. So to use another example, somebody who came to me, um, who was looking for coaching. And I, I basically said like, yeah, we can do what you're asking me to do in terms of figuring out systems and making things work for you. But what you're describing, you know, I'm not a doctor, but what you're describing sounds like if you just start ADHD meds, a lot of this stuff's going to go away. Mm. And I don't want you to spend money with me setting up all these systems. And then you start meds and all that, all those problems go away. But now you have a new layer of like systems to set up or things you want to do, you know? So that's another thing I think about a lot is like, what uh, I don't know what sort of like level are you at with, you know, being able to use the capacity that you do have? Cause that's the other problem is we're often, we're, we're certainly talked about as, you know, from the deficiency standpoint or from sort of the medical standpoint, as opposed to the strengths standpoint, I'm very like strengths focused in my work, but, but the deficiencies matter, right? The things mm-hmm. that I'm not good mm-hmm. at, the things I can't do, I should not be trying to build a bajillion systems to make me great at those things. I just need to build systems to just get past it. So I've actually, I'm in a like standard operating procedure kick right now where I'm, I have like little SOPs for like how to check my email and like how to do all this stuff. Cause I think I have dyspraxia also, which is like extreme clumsiness plus really particular executive fun, like trouble ordering tasks. Mm. So like, for example, I made myself a task bracelet for laundry because I cannot remember all the steps of laundry in a row. 
it's not going to happen. So I'm always missing something, but I'll like miss a different thing every time. So yeah. I'm trying to create systems for myself, like, and I have great coping mechanisms and I'm on Adderall, right? So I have like all the support and, and my partner is like incredibly supportive. So I have kind of maximum support and I still struggle a lot. And that's like part of the message I want to put out there in general is like healing or sort of getting your meds dialed in or like figuring out all your systems. This is not about getting to a point where there is no struggle. The world is still not set up for us. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, and I think that's the layer for me and what I notice in clients, like that's the layer that is really the hardest maybe to kind of deal with or like shift because there's that internalized ableism like that mm -hmm. for sure comes up for me all the time. and that comes up for a lot of my clients wherein, right, they really, you know, like thinking that they're just a failed neurotypical person, right? Like there's just this like, like if I could just get the system right, you know, and like then all this stuff wouldn't be a problem and it's not taking into account like all of the, the needs and the support that they maybe do or don't have. And, and so, you know, we work a lot on mindset around that, right? A lot in terms of like radical acceptance. But I know for me, like there's been a little bit of a, a mourning around the person that I thought that I was going to self-help my way into being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's real. Because that yeah. person's not a real person, you know? Totally. Um, or that person maybe, you know, for me, like I'm thinking back to when I was doing, when I was maxing myself out and just anxious and depressed and, you know, not eating correctly and like just felt like shit all the time. Um I was meeting a lot of the sort of external standards of what I thought I could be and like what I thought my potential was. And I've grown to hate the word potential. And this, this is me like as a composer in particular, because that's like my main thing. Um, I was so miserable. And so the external sort of like meeting external goals part or sort of, you know, meeting some societal standard expectation thing uh, was not worth it basically. And so, yeah, part of the morning, I think is just for everybody like processing what disability means for you. And like one of the phrases I hear a lot is just like how disabled I am, like realizing mm -hmm. I'm more disabled than I ever wanted to think. Cause yeah, ableism in society is really bad. Yeah. That's like one of the, the primary things I've been working on in, in therapy. And it started even like before my diagnosis where I kind of well, before the ADHD diagnosis, there were lots of other like CPTSD and anxiety and depression, um, like all the hand, the bag. Same. <laughs> and like, I had this realization that, you know, that those were not going away. You know, like I kept thinking that if I just got the right amount of sleep and the routine, right. And all the things that like there was one day I was going to wake up and not be depressed, you know, like, and and it hit that like, oh, that's not that's not coming. That day's not coming. Um, so I think like there's just been like layers of of unraveling and acceptance and com like confronting, you know, like, oh, yeah, I actually am way less capable than I thought I was. Um, and that's really hard. And then, you know, on the flip side of it, like talking about the ways in which, you know, 
the strengths, the weaknesses are the strengths. And like, as especially as creatives, and I wonder what your thought about what you think about this, because like that whole, like the going with the flow or like the finding the flow of the energy. Like I, I have, I'm of two minds about it, of course, because I'm never of one mind about anything. Um, is that, is that, um, there is a skill in learning how to produce when you don't feel that spark of creation, when you don't have like where you're not in that flow, like where the creativity, like muses aren't visiting you. That's a skill to develop if you, you know, want to. But then there's also that like not forcing yourself to do things when it's just not there and kind of how all of this plays in then with like demand avoidance or you know, inconsistent energy. Like, am I going to have like physical energy today or am I going to have mental energy? I guess creative energy is a sort of a mix of those two in a way, right? Because we, we have to like physically animate in order to create things. So I don't know, like, what do you think about that? Oh, I think, I think so many things. Um, yes, I think it's, it is important to have, elements in your workflow where you can do work on your creative life without it being, you know, oh my God, yay flow state, right? Part of the way I think about that is um, I think of creating and editing as separate tasks. I think they're separate tasks in the brain. And as a monotropic person, I cannot do those two things in the same session. So I'm either in, you know, drafting, creating, state or I'm in editing state. And I think that splitting those up automatically helps a lot. There's also the sort of like business marketing, self-promotion side of things, which as a composer, I've been much worse at than the first two. Uh, and I wasn't in, even in grad school, like my teacher was great for me, but he was in his eighties and he didn't give a fuck about like the modern, you know, how to put yourself out there. So as I was finishing grad school, my, some of my uh, cohort members were like, getting, you know, putting all this stuff out there like publicly. And I was like winning awards within the school, but I was like, oh shit, I probably should have been like putting stuff out there, but that's like a whole separate Mm -hmm. third thing. Mm -hmm. That part, I think like the putting yourself out there part, I think you can do in a full grumpy baby state. Like it's not fun, but like I can put my work on YouTube and like send people a YouTube link and like fill out grant applications when I'm in a grumpy state. Like I actually, that's, so that's like the lowest end of my creative, uh, production is all that stuff. So thinking about those three things, I think, and then thinking about what kind of, um, what kind of state you need to be in, in order to do those things, as opposed to there is one perfect ideal state in which I will do all of my great creative work. And then trying to get yourself to that. That's very different than like, well, there's actually a big, you know, range of tasks that require some of the, some of which don't require very much of me, honestly, creatively. Yeah. I, yeah, I love that. I, I like sort of un, like, I guess, it was intuitive because I was kind of following my own, <laughs> my own needs and the needs of my clients who a lot of now, um, been diagnosed like with certain mm-hmm. things where they weren't before, um, created like a system of like what I call intuitive scheduling where, you know, it's really about like, like kind of what are my energy levels? What, what tasks need, what kind of energy what is my cycle of energy throughout the day, the week, the month? What can I consistently rely on versus what I can't? What in my environment like impacts like my, my and I was like putting this whole thing together like 
again, based on my own experience, not realizing like what a great tool it is for, <laughs> I guess people like me, um, before I knew I was a person like me, uh, like officially, you know, uh, and I think that is probably one of the most important things is like understanding in that creative space. Like it's, there's no perfect state. Like, I love that you said that we get into this very rigid all or nothing about it. And really I've worked with a client who, you know, I've, I've told her, like we've worked on, like, it has to be the smallest thing. It has to be the gentlest way of working with yourself. And part of her brain is like, no, that means I'm doing nothing. And, you know, and the other part of her is like, yes, I know that I know that's going to work. I know that's going to work. Right. So that internal struggle of kind of knowing what is going to kind of work for us in terms of like taking it down a notch, simple tasks, smaller things, less demand, and then but wanting to have it all done now. Oh my God. The, the wanting it to be everything to be done in a single session is like an ADHD thing. They're like, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to start this unless I can finish it in a session. Like I don't even want to, I don't even want to take a pee break. Like this should be. And so when you have a task that takes 26 hours, you know, like a new website I'm building right now, that's taking like four times longer than I, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm scheduling so much time for this. And then it's taking like four times longer than I thought for like, you know, very good reasons like that. I'm trying to say something here. <laughs> you know, put together a body of resources, but like, and, and like make things make sense together. But yeah, it it's so, um, when you have time blindness, uh, it, one way I've heard it put for ADHD that I really, really like is that time is just now and not now. And that's it. And that's why we want to be able to do everything in a single session, for example, because there's now when I am doing the thing. And then if I don't do it now, it ceases to exist. <laughs> It's got, it's yeah, just gone. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, even with like, okay. So to go back to, I, I do like this broad question of like how to build a business that works for you. And I recognize that I have not answered that question in a meaningful sense. Um, the, <laughs> I actually have realized that in my work, I actually do have sort of steps that I take people through. Um, it's like self-discovery feel better first is like the next one after that. So it's like, know who you are, then feel better. Well, I feel better first really almost is first. They're kind of combined, but those are like the combined kind of first step. And then after you're feeling better and your brain is in a better state, like you have to be in the right state to be able to zoom out and look at your life and think about what needs to change. Like we can't think creatively when we're in this, you know, anxiety brain, narrow tunnel, like that's just not a state for creativity. So the being able to zoom out, like I, I, I'm like, we have to, you have to feel better before we can do that. But then when we do do that, we can look at, you know, the systems level thinking of your life and like, you know, what are one or two things we're changing them would actually make a big difference for everything else. And then there's, you know, integration implementation. And part of what I'm moving away from in my work is doing that last step with people one-on-one, -on -one because I think, first of all, I mean, this is just me, but I'm like, you can get an accountability buddy for free. Like if you just need implement and also you don't know how long implementation is going to take to go back to that. Like, we just don't know how long it's going to take. I don't want somebody to be paying me for a year to like organize their house. Um, right. even though like they want that and they need that, and that's the support they're looking for. It's 
well, unfortunately it's boring to me, which is part of the problem, (laughs) but also I'm like, I want you to have community support, friend support, family support for those types of things. And I want to be here for like the big questions that nobody else has been able to answer for you that you've gotten stuck on. And that everybody who you're talking to is like, what are you talking about? Like, that's what I'm here for is the, like the big stuff, um, and helping kind of shift that. Um, so applying that kind of framework to building a business, like you have to know who you are and what you actually want and need. You have to know how to work with your brain and body to be able to feel good enough to get stuff done. Because if you can't do that, you know, or, or if you're just not there and you know, it's not a, not a can't or won't, like sometimes it's just, you know, you have disability or a flare up or right. Like something else going on, or, you know, you're, you have caretaking duties or other things that get in the way. Um, and then, then it's kind of the big picture stuff and the big picture stuff. Again, that can be anywhere from, you know, an extremely meaningful weekend retreat where you like, I don't know, have a psychedelic experience and rethink your entire life, right? Like people can <laughs> do some of these things at a short amount of time sometimes, but the implementation part is the actual hard part. I think a lot of people think that the big decision-making or sort of like insight is the hard part, but in my experience with people, they can have the insight every four weeks for a year and a half and still not change anything. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I'm speaking from experience here. (laughs) Like keep having the same thing coming up my journaling and I'm like, wait, I've been journaling about this like periodically for a long time. Yeah. I wonder if it's because the implementation, right, can be kind of, it is boring. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, and there's it, not as much dopamine in it. It's there, just yeah. not as motivating. It's not as motivating. And there's, it, it's, there's failure. And not that, I mean, I'm all about failure, but the failure feels not like. for me, not for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but not for me. Uh, but it because because it feels like more time, right? Like the failure feels like more time, and if you have that, like, if you if you've experienced like there's either now or not now, I think that for me it makes me very anxious about completing things, you know. So, and open loops in the brain are like you know more uh, low, you know, uh, allostatic load, cognitive load, like all these things. Um, and that's another another piece of I think the broader neurodivergent experience where if if you don't have your experience re- reflected back to you, like I jotted down a note when you were talking about labor, um, when you're having a very different internal experience to what you're seeing around you or what people are reflecting back to you, it it is labor. You're literally working harder because you're not being validated your, your experience isn't making sense to you. And so you're doing internal labor to like make things make sense if nobody else can reflect that back to you. And I mean, conclusion of that for me is at this point, I have almost no neurotypical friends. I'd have a couple, but like (laughs) not a lot because otherwise it's just like so much work to try to do all of that processing by myself and just have them not be able to communicate with me in a way that makes sense to me. Yeah, it's frustrating um, and can be really painful, right? Like yeah. there's that, or you just stop sharing things. Like it feels to me, it feels very like relationships have become very like surface level because I'm just not, I'm just not going to share with you 
what is going on for me because I know anything you say back to me isn't gonna isn't going to like land for me right it's like I just it's like the you know you were saying like the tr- the conventional advice you just know it's not going to work like anytime I have a conversation with someone that that then they you know I know what they're going to say already and I know it's not going to work and so it's like I'm not even going to go down the road of having the conversation because I've already had it in my head oh uh, yeah yeah. So, so then on the, the other big thing I've been thinking about a lot and talking about some of my clients with, um, in one of my programs, uh, about is this whole thing about building a career as a creative, um, the last kind of group chat we had was basically my current thoughts about why it's actually getting harder and harder to kind of start a new career. I mean, in a lot of fields, but as a creative in particular, um, some of the things that are happening with, you know, AI and like the devalue, like I've done, you know, film composing, for example, film is an incredibly extractive industry and they view musicians as laborers. Mm. Um, it's, it's just, you're so disrespected. Um, you know, even with people who are like nice, it's just like, it's this big bureaucratic machine that chews people up. So there are all these, like, there's this split between your, the creative work you want to be making, what you as an artist see as your vision or your work in the world, like what you care about, what you feel emotionally attached to, how you're, you're developing mastery, you know, in what you do and how you maybe, maybe how you picture the end point of your career, whatever that means for you, like what you want to be creating versus the commercial side and how you make money. Because they are as far as I found so far in every artistic area, those are not the same, unless you do something really specific, like audio engineering, where like, those are more naturally married together. But a lot of sort of pure, I'm sitting by myself writing something or creating something, there's not a direct connection between the artistic mastery and the commercial side of things. So you need something that makes you money. And if you can make that happen with your art. For some people that works really well, what I'm noticing in myself and other certainly ADHD folks is that you can use up a lot of your creative energy on just the commercial stuff. And then you don't really want to do your own stuff on the side. That's happened for me every time I've been, you know, composing sort of more quote full time when it's been more of my uh, money-making and then I'm, you know, like I have this string quartet that I drafted, like, I don't know, three years ago and like took to a festival and had teachers look at it. And they were like, this is great. You should finish it. I have not fucking finished it. Right. Cause it's just like, there's no deadline attached to it. It's not a commission. Nobody's paying me. And I keep writing the third movement, realizing it's actually a different piece, taking it out and writing a new third movement. Like I just keep doing this over and over. Um, so now it's, it's spun out like seven pieces or something from this one thing. Cause there's too many ideas in it. Anyway, that's, that's my own <laughs> personal problem, but you know, this, this artistic mastery side of things, um, if you can build something career-wise or business-wise that that's what I'm doing, trying to do right now, or what I I guess what I have done, um, is that what I've built business-wise as a coach allows me to make my art. And what I've been kind of processing this year is, okay, building a business is fun. It gives me a lot of brain chemicals. And so it's really easy for me. In theory, I hold the last week of every month for composing. I have literally not done that a single week this year. Every, every month 
um, at the, in the last week of the month, I have clients who are like, Oh, can we just meet this week? I'm like, yeah, that's fine. So it's, it's my boundary that I'm not holding. Um, but basically like, I'm not taking the time, like in theory, my business is just, it is to support my art making. That's why I made it. And in theory it's working and I'm just not like (laughs) being, um, I don't even want to use the word strict, but I'm not holding to the boundary that I set for myself. So part of what I'm doing right now is just figuring out, okay, what's, what's not working about this? Like, why have I not been doing this? And like, what do I want to do instead? I think that that's so important because I, I think that that's so many people's experience, right? Like, well, there's two, there's actually two parts of it. Um, one is the, what, as you were talking about the, like having a career that supports your art. The first thing that always comes to mind is the word sellout. And I don't know if any, I don't know, excuse me. I don't know if anybody else has this except for people who are in the creative, in the creative world where making money is seen as selling out or betraying your art or right. There's that whole starving artist trope that we obviously know about, but it, it, I think it's so insidious and it needs like unpacking because it's one of those things that we say it, but it's kind of lost meaning because it needs to be individually critiqued, right? Like in terms of what, what conditioning and social messaging is in your way um, specifically, like, and kind of, especially if you think about like intersectionality, like what messages are you receiving from your culture, from all the places? So it's reductive to just you know oh yeah we're all starving artists or whatever like that was so reductive and because I think it allows us to not really look at it we get to just kind of push it away and be like oh yeah I have scarcity whatever uh without actually doing the confronting work of like what are the things that I am believing that are contributing to keeping me in this space and then we project it onto other people who maybe don't have those issues and we're like well they're selling out i couldn't do that and like we'd bring all that in so that was one one thing that was coming up as you were talking about this idea of yeah how do we create how do we create money revenue business like a business that supports our creative endeavors and then once we do that I think it is very common for a lot of us to then, and maybe this is a demand thing where it's like, well, I, my future, like, you know, past me was thought I was going to be really cool with doing this at this time, but now present me, which is future me or whatever, feels very like, no, I'm not, I like, it's very avoidant of like whatever demands I put on myself from the past. And I think that's a common experience because you, you, all of a sudden it's time but your present self does not want to do the thing past self set up for you. Yeah. I mean, it's a universal experience. Everybody experiences that at some point, I think where the, cause I have very strong PDA pathological Mm. demand avoidance or persistent drive for autonomy, the community term. And my favorite description of it was from Dr. Megan Neff, I think who called it a a nervous system disability. Mm. So it is your, it is your nervous system, not being able to regulate itself in a particular way. And then it's also, or maybe she's the one that said that it's an energy, a future energy issue. So like Mm. if I'm saving my energy so that I'm going to be able to write later and my partner says, Hey, can you just 
come to another floor, do this task, do executive function, you know, take time out of your day, like switch contexts, you know, all this stuff, like to them, it's just, Hey, can you come do this thing? And to me, it's like 10 things that are all going to take a bunch more energy than they take for a non ADHD person. And then I don't have energy anymore to do the writing later. I've like used up my willpower or whatever. Like there's all these things that could be going into it, but I like that kind of overall description of it. It's not simply that my brain does not want to do this thing right now. It's that my, my body has a wisdom around, we have limited energy. And if we don't save it, we're not going to be able to do what we want to do. And that I think is a very good description of the ADHD experience in general, which is I'm using so much energy and time and thought and, you know, conscientiousness to just survive. And I never get to do what I want to do. And I never get to like meet my big goals that I have. I'm not even close because I'm just surviving. And why is it so hard to just live? Oh, that question. It's like every day, every day I have that question. Why is it just so hard to live? Um, This makes me think of something that you kind of wrote about when we were kind of writing back and forth, just about the idea of success and redefining what that looks like. And that's a really hard one, I think, for just anybody in general. But taking into account, because there's so much out there in that like marketing world of like, build a six figure business, build like, you know, all (laughs) All did it. It did not do what I thought it was going to (laughs) do for my brain. That's so important, right? Like you get there and it's like, it's not. There's no there there. I didn't do it. And and then these messages are hard to remove from our brains about what success is supposed to look like versus what we want it to look like. I've coached so many people on like, yeah, you can build that. But like, do you want to or like, what is your one specific client? Like, I was like, why was that the goal? (laughs) You know, and like past the like, well, that's what. I was hearing, you know, we had to go deeper than that, like then pass, because obviously we're all hearing that, but like just really dissecting, but like, why was it your, like, why did you think that that was going to work for you or even going to be possible given where you, like what your experience was in the past, where you were coming from, the capacity that you've been um, working at versus that, like the increased capacity you'd need to have in order to reach that. And if you, we actually discovered the capacity she was trying to work out was actually like way less than she actually had. So that like the, the gap between what she actually had capacity for and what that business would have required was actually bigger than she thought. Yeah. And that's in part because of our tendency to plan for our best days as though we're going to like, you know, the day that I have maybe twice a month, I'm like, I could do that five days a week with the right systems. No, I can't. I need to plan for average days because <laughs> that's by nature, the average, um, that why question is so, so important because so another thing I think that happens in, um, you know, sort of planning, building, trying to create both art and business stuff is that we have goals that we think are going to achieve our kind of high, big goals, like our life goals, but we don't actually think about 
what's the actual big kind of life version of this goal very much typically. Some people do, some people it's part of their planning process, but usually I think those are more just like in the back of our mind if we're not defining those. And so for example, for me, my composition goal lifelong is to become the interdisciplinary composer that I want to be, which is not about getting specific, you know, performances or winning specific awards. It's just, if I'm writing the music I want to be writing, it's not only satisfying in itself, but I'm going to be very, very proud of myself. And the gap between where I am now and what I consider to be my mature output, which I'm not there yet, um, even, you know, after two degrees and a shit ton of stuff, like I, I can see where I'm going to get to, but that's not related to making money or any of these other things. Now that said, a lot of my sort of year long or even decade long goals were awards, you know, getting specific grants, getting specific commissions, because I was trying to figure out how to make money from my art. And that's kind of the pathway to do that. If you're not independently wealthy, the other thing I want to say just in like the music world in particular, uh, a friend of mine who had started to sub for the Seattle symphony in his forties. And he's literally one of the best horn players I've ever heard. Like I would hire him for anything. He was like, have you noticed that every single musician or composer, you know, who had a, a big career before the age of 30 has rich parents. And I thought about it and I literally could not think of a single exception. Um, I don't know how true that is in like fine arts or, you know, other areas, but in music, that is very, very true. And you don't know about it. People don't go out saying I have a trust fund until you know them really well, right? Like this is not a thing people announce, but as I started to learn, cause I went to a, a top level conservatory for grad school. And the, when I started to see the, the wealth, the deep, ridiculous wealth, I was like, oh, no wonder I've struggled to get my work performed, you know, cause I was looking at my resume compared to other people's resumes and I'd never done a summer program cause I couldn't afford them. <laughs> like, you know, all these things where like you meet people, that's where you do the networking, all this stuff. And the reason that feels really important to me to say is if your goals are related to what you're seeing other people's sort of external output, um, that didn't quite make a sentence, but like you're, you're seeing a certain thing from the outside of other people, not knowing how much support they're receiving financially from their family in a lot of cases. And you're like, oh, if I could just do that, it would support me as an artist, but they're not being supported as an artist by that. They're getting that because they're wealthy. And I think just like deeply internalizing that changed my ideas about success as a composer, because I was like, okay, realistically, at least for the foreseeable future, I'm not going to be able to, to completely support myself as, as a composer, unless I'm teaching. That's one way to do it. Um, but basically like the, the amount you get, even for good, good commissions, is just not enough for the most part, unless they're like really high level. And I'm just not, uh, there yet in terms of my resume. So my actual goal, my life goal of becoming the composer, I want to be writing the music I want to write, having it. It's not even about the impact. It's like, if my music is doing what I'm trying to do, it has the impact. I know that because I've had performances where people had exactly the physical reaction I was trying to get them to have. Like if I can make that happen, the music will do what I want it to do. And I don't really care if it wins awards or makes money or whatever, because if I can do what I know I can do as an artist, um, it will find the right people. It just might not make me the money. <laughs> Cause again, I'm looking at like 
the outside of other people's careers being like, oh, wow, like if I could just do that. And it's like, yeah, but that's not how they're supporting themselves anyway. They literally have rich parents. Yeah, my friend just sent me like a meme that was like Oprah, like how to relax. And it was like, step one, have a billion dollars. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, yeah, you know, like there is so much. I mean, and that's funny, but to your point, yeah. And I would say definitely dance is what I know the most about. And, you know, if you look at something like people who are in ballet companies, yeah, right. Like a lot of times they're coming from very wealthy backgrounds because ballet is expensive. You know, like you need a new pair of point shoes like every week or whatever. You know, it's like this is, it's like a huge investment plus the the education that is required to like be at that level. Yeah, it requires you to go to the summer intensives. It requires you to, you know, like and we're talking summer intensives in New York City, right? And like the most expensive places to pursue these things. So it's not just the cost of the intensive, it's everything else. And yeah, that like financial support is so key in that regard. And it is not like, it's not, it's just not nice. It's not, it's not fair. It's not fair to do to oneself to like, yeah, compare someone's external achievement when we don't know where they're coming from but maybe let's assume we're not supposed to make assumptions, but like, let's maybe just assume that there is some level of support there that we're not seeing um, that is helping them get there. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we can't achieve our own goals. Right. It just means that, like you said, like that, why, why is this your goal? Like we just need to be questioning, you know, what are my like big, you know, long-term goals around, whatever it is. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, arts and business, but like, whatever it is, what are your big goals and why, like, what do you think that's going to get you? And if it is, for example, winning awards or making money or all this stuff, like why, what is that going to get you? Because if what it's going to get you is time to make your art, guess what? You can do that by just like, you know, doing what I did for a while, which is living in affordable, like city uh, subsidized housing and like not making that much money, but like having time to write. And like, that's a very valid way to live. It's just not kind of the big societal picture of success. Oh yeah, no, not at all. And just, yeah, thinking about like, what is your specific pathway to that thing? I love what you were saying just about like, what do I want my music to do? Like, what do I want my art to do? And the impact that I want it to have? Because impact is not necessarily the thing that people are talking about all the time. And I actually just came back from uh, an event uh, with Trudy LeBron and the like coaches forum with the equity, the Institute for equity centered coaching. Um, It's a lot to say. (laughs) And there was so much conversation about impact, right? About how can we really build businesses that are like based in impact and how we want to like, you know, move people forward in the world and what that can look like, because the traditional thing that's out there right now, right. Is like not a business, like having one offer and like selling that out. And like, that's not a business plan, you know? And I think that 
this is why I think it's parallel is because like as a creative, like a business plan is not like just going and booking every gig you can. Like that is not a business plan. It's a way to make money, but it's also a way to burn yourself out because you're spending so much energy and effort and time into booking those gigs that again, what are, what do you want your act? Like what is a successful creative career look like? And that might not look like booking every gig unless those, unless you're going to use those gigs, right. To like transition you into something else. Are you going to network? Are you going to like, you know, do you have a plan for those gigs? Like, I think that's where it all comes back to. Totally. And that's part of, you know, when I said, like, I think it's getting harder to start new businesses in certain ways, or I should say small sort of solo businesses um, and like creative businesses. It's partly because of the time and effort and learning required to even, like you said, put the time in to book those gigs, like to get the initial work to, you know, find your initial clients, do all this stuff. Like there's so much work, like the first year of my coaching business about, I guess, four years ago now, almost um, that year, I didn't do, I didn't have a lot of hours with clients that were paid, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. but, and it, but, it, but I put in a lot of work, I was putting in a lot of hours and, you know, eventually that, that sort of like catches up. But if I, if I hadn't had the the actual space I had where literally I was in subsidized housing where I was paying, you know, a, a quarter of the rent for the, like the, the, of the sort of market value rent, which for Boston is ridiculous, um, <laughs> which is where I was, but yeah, like I had these supports that allowed me to put in that time to build the business. But if you don't have that, like, again, you're seeing people's output, right? I think most people in my life think I started my coaching career about a year, year and a half later than I actually did because I wasn't talking about it that much. I wasn't like, I wasn't marketing well is what I should say. <laughs> and I, cause I was still learning that and I was still doing all this like foundational work and like, you know, getting certified and doing all this stuff. So like I was working really, really hard. And then the point at which people are like, oh, Hey, you're a coach and you're doing all this stuff. Like I've been working on it for a year and a half at that point. And again, we're not seeing that invisible labor that people are doing. And we're mostly seeing success stories. People mostly talk about their successes and not about, you know, certainly not as much like the businesses they started that just totally didn't work. So people might talk about the failures early in their business that is now a success, but most people don't talk about like the, oh, and I tried this. Oh, and I tried this. Like, oh, and I was a massage therapist. Like, (laughs) you know, yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And I talk about it all the time. Like, well, part of it is I like, collect certifications, but like, you know, I, I was, you know, a soul cycle instructor in 2013. I'm certified in gyrotonic. When we moved to the suburbs, I became a real estate agent. Like I've done all of these things. And like, they just, I talk about them all the time because it's like, I want to normalize this idea of like, first of all, like trying to find yourself and like what fits and what works and all of that. But just also that like, yeah, you can don't, don't feel like ashamed of like my real, like real estate was not for me. I thought it was going to be, it just really wasn't. It just was not it. And I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> and some people might look at that as a fail, but I'm like, I look at it as like something that I needed to experience in order to know. And I got a lot of skills from it that I didn't have before. I feel like we could talk literally all day. Uh, <laughs> and like the the next place my mind is going is actually like a whole like 
the whole marketing side of things, which like we didn't even like talk about, but you just touched on is an entirely other conversation that would take us into like a whole nother hour. So I don't want to do that. But yeah, like, I don't know. I feel like we're kind of coming to sort of a a natural ending. Like, is there anything else that you would want to say or make sure people walk away with in regard to this conversation? Yeah. Uh, Google monotropism, M-O-N-O-T-R-O-P-I-S-M. Um, it literally explains everything about autism. It's also pretty common in ADHD folks. There's also a huge overlap between autism and ADHD. Probably within our lifetimes, we will be maybe moving away from those labels and just talking about monotropism and interest-based nervous systems, which is what we all have. And the reason that this is so important to understand, first of all, it's more of a strengths-based perspective, but also starting to really understand the ways that your brain focuses and uses interest, you can work with that. This is not just, you know, oh, I can't, you know, do a nine to five job without, uh, you know, causing problems. <laughs> this is like, look, I'm really, really good at diving deep, you know, using like synthesizing information in a particular way. Like I'm really good at these really particular things. And monotropism is a really lovely uh, image for that. The other thing I kind of wanted to just put out there again for folks to look into is that one of the other things happening in neurodivergent brains is um, like different areas of the brain oversyncing with one another. So it's almost like two gears getting stuck together. And one of the things, I mean, it is one theory about why say Adderall works so well um, is that it can help the brain kind of like sync more correctly. Um, I don't know that that's been like proven, but I know that in say OCD, for example, oversyncing of like motor areas and thoughts is part of what's happening. So it's like, you need to just get, you, you, you basically, you have a thought and your body's like, I have to do something about it. And that's like the OCD kind of problem, but it happens in other neurodivergent brains as well. And the thing I wanted to make sure people know about that is one of the most effective things, if you're not on a stimulant medication is movement and not just exercise, but literally moving your body. If your brain is feeling stuck, you need to move your body. And if that means the, the thing we use with kids where it's like one, two, three, four, five blast off, and you just stand up, if it's just saying over and over, and I say, this as a hypnotherapist, like I'm getting up, I'm getting up, I'm putting my phone down I'm putting my phone down, whatever it is like to just, if you can just get your body to change states a bit, it can help with that sinking stuff in the brain. And when I learned that, and I started using that really actively for myself, it completely changed everything. Like even before Adderall, which I also love and, you know, <laughs> recommend if you need it. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I know meet same, same on any meds you need. Love, love my meds. I love this because, you know, as a, as a dancer, as a, as, you know, a professional mover, it makes so much sense. And as someone who doesn't have a lot of interoceptive like information happening. I never know what my body needs. Um, people are always like, you must be so in touch with your emotions. I'm like, I know, like I can, I can focus on making my body do things I want it to do because I'm trained to do that. But I have no idea what's like happening in, in there on a regular basis that I am like complete, like I'm not, I knock into things 17 million times a day. I'm like, my husband's always like, What's wrong? I'm like, I just, you know, I just ran into the wall again for no reason. But just that like body piece, like you don't have to, because this is always the roadblock for me. It's like, 
especially in like traditional like therapy and things like that. Like, where do you feel that in your body? I'm like, I don't effing know. You don't need to know, right? Like you don't need to know like that. It's like what's going on in your body for that movement to be beneficial. Right. And I think that's where like a lot of us can get, or I don't personally can get like stuck in the, well, what do I need right now? And it's like, I don't, let's just get up, just like get up, like, and change your physical state and get out of your brain. That's maybe not like where you want it to be. Or maybe there is this like, like sinking this over, like maybe that's going on where you can't really figure it out from a thought perspective, but move your body. Right. Because and your brain is stuck. Your, your thoughts yeah. can't fix this problem. It's in a, it. You're in a thought loop or the monotropic thing of getting stuck in like a particular thought loop. Like also when you, if you don't know what to do, here's okay. Cause I'm going to give you a specific piece of advice. So you can take okay. this if you want. Once you've gotten yourself into motion, if you're like, I don't know what to do next, go get water with electrolytes. Uh, there is newish evidence that uh, neurodivergent brains, because there's more neural activity and more neural firing that we actually are burning up salts in the brain faster. So you might actually need more salt. And anecdotally, a lot of uh, ADHD folks need a lot of salt to live. So get up, go get water with electrolytes in it. Even if it's just throwing a little salt in it, literally drink that, see how you feel. And then ask yourself, what do I need? I am shook by that. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes down to electrolytes. Oh my God. I love this so much. Um, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. Yeah, thank you. This is great. You're right. We could totally talk all day. I'll just cancel all my clients, cancel my therapy. <laughs> Done. We're just going to stay on. But um, yeah. Uh, oh, where to find us? We need. <laughs> We're not just having a coffee chat. Where can we find us? Yeah. Where can people find you? Yeah. So right now, my main website is matiamaray.com, but I also am very, very close to publishing adhdflourishing.com, which is also the ADHD flourishing is also the name of my podcast right now, um, which is like almost at 20,000 listens in five months, which is nuts. It's like really exploded really fast. So yay. <laughs> um, well, it's really good. I've been binging it and thank you. it's, it's, and I'm sending episodes to my sister. <laughs> Nice. And we're just like, yes, this is so good. So I understand why it your why your podcast is also flourishing. Oh, <laughs> thank you. And where can people find you? People can find me um, on Instagram at the only Chris Hale. Uh, that's also my website, the only Chris Hale.com and uh, my podcast. You need a coach, bitch. Um, which now I feel like since Britney's memoir came out, now I really feel like I need to like do a deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> on Brittany because she was the inspiration for the coach for the title but yeah that's that's where people can find me awesome all right thank you Mattia thank you thanks for being here and taking a moment for yourself I hope the episode sparks some ideas or possibilities for your own journey if you're looking for gentle ongoing support I invite you to join the like your brain community it's a non-hierarchical and no pressure space to share our lived experiences together and learn from each other Ask authentic questions, share your own wisdom, and be a part of building a safer space for folks with identities that are often marginalized. And if you're not yet ready to be seen in a group space, we've all been there, you can join the podcast support tier, which has a private podcast feed with some of the learnings from Like Your Brain and additional podcast content, so you can absorb on your own terms and timeline. We're here whenever you're ready. The link is in the show notes or at patreon.com slash that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash M-A-T-T-I-A. Have a great week.